The following audio is from a sermon series on the Apostles' Creed. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Acts chapter 13, verses 24 to 31. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get right to it. Father, we thank you for not leaving us without hope. We thank you for entering into history, entering into our story, becoming a man. We thank you for Jesus. Father, we thank you for your word that gives us uh, the testimony of Jesus, that tells us what's true. I pray this morning um, that you would speak through me, your servant. Uh, I am, as Joel said, uh, a human, and I am a struggling human, a sinful human. And so I know the many ways that my words can go awry this morning. And so I ask that you would guide me and you would keep me and that you would think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords, that your people this morning would hear your voice and they'd be drawn to you. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are studying the oldest and most widely used creed of the Christian church across the centuries, the Apostles' Creed. And this creed spells out for us the basics of what Christians believe. And it's important for us to spend time studying the basics because it's here where Christianity gets its unique and distinct power to change our lives. See, right now, it seems like our culture is doing everything in its power to flatten religion and spirituality, to empty the world religions of their distinctiveness. It's kind of the mantra today. It doesn't matter what you believe, we are told. How does it make you feel? As long as it makes you feel good and as long as it makes you live a decent life, then it's okay. All religions are equal. This sounds at first hearing to be very inclusive and open-minded, very, very nice. But then when you think about it and you start asking questions and you kind of get inside that, you realize that this viewpoint is just as exclusive and closed-minded as really any other view. It's not nice at all, really. How could anyone say 
that all religions are equally good and valid unless, of course, they believe their view is the one that is equally good and right. Why is that view right and other views wrong? If one religion says we are the only in good, right religion, then they are labeled as exclusive and closed-minded bigots. But when someone says all belief systems are equal, that is just as an exclusive statement. Shouldn't we condemn that view based on its own logic? Now, I bring this up because it's very easy for us to lose the guts of Christianity. It's very easy for us to literally gut Christianity under this type of cultural pressure. And when we lose the guts, we lose Christianity. We lose vital, real, life-giving Christianity. We end up tailoring a watered-down, gutless faith to our own wishes and our own desires that looks like everything else in the world today. It becomes a self-made religion that bears the name of Christ But when you look inside, it's empty. It doesn't actually possess the internal organs that made Christianity so unique and shaped our world in such a powerful way. Now, I don't think I've heard a more succinct description of what it means to gut Christianity than the one given by Richard Niebuhr. And Richard Niebuhr was a professor uh, for Yale who died in the early 60s. And he was confronting this kind of cultural idea of Christianity, this flattened or gutless Christianity. And he said, here is the mantra of the gutless, my my word, gutless Christianity. He said this, a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministration of a Christ without a cross. Now, let me break this down for you and see how, where it's coming from and, and how it's, it's maybe the dominant religion in the United States of America right now. One, a God without wrath. I can't believe in a God of wrath. I don't know how many times I've heard that. Brought men without sin. I believe most people are good. I believe people are born good. Into a kingdom without judgment. I believe I should be able to choose how to best live my life, my morals, my worldview, and no one has the right to disagree with me. No one has the right to say, you're wrong. Through the ministration of a Christ without a cross, Jesus didn't need to die for me. He mainly exists as a moral exemplar that I should try to emulate. But if he did die on the cross for me, then he did it to show me how special I am and how truly unique I am and how much God loves me. Not because I was so helplessly lost in my sin that I could never find salvation on my own. See, when this happens this gutless version of Christianity. We may have religiosity. We may get some feels on a Sunday morning. We may have spirituality, but we do not have Christianity. So we're going to continue this morning exploring some of the guts of Christianity. Today we're going to cover two lines from the creed on the section of Jesus. 
Very simple. Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. Now, why is Pilate mentioned here? It's kind of surprising, actually, when you read the creed and what's most important, and this guy named Pilate finds his way in. Well, let me give you a couple reasons. First, Christianity doesn't begin with once upon a time in a galaxy far, far away. <laughs> See, that's how myths begin. That's how good stories begin, right? But that's not how Christianity begins. Pilate was a governor of Judea from A.D. 26 to A.D. 35. This roots Christianity in the real world. See, Christianity isn't like many other of the world religions that are primarily about feelings or primarily about ideas or primarily about spiritual truths. Christianity is first and foremost about facts. God acting in history. Jesus really lived. Jesus really suffered. Jesus really died under this guy, historical person named Pontius Pilate 2,000 years ago. When, when people tell me that they have a difficult time believing in God, I usually ask them, okay, what do you think of Jesus? Because Jesus is a historical reality that we can really get our minds around. It's hard to wrap our minds around God, who is spirit, who is eternal. You can't see and you can't touch. But Jesus is a fact that can be researched. Several years ago, it's been like probably 15 or 20 now, um, Lee Strobel, I think he worked for the Chicago Tribune, he was an atheist, and his wife got converted to Christianity, and this messed up his life. <laughs> yeah. she, you know, now you know, she's, a, she's a Christian. She's going to church. She's got this new community, and it's, getting, it's messing up with their you know, upper middle class or upper uh, lifestyle that they had. And so he, he says, I'm a reporter. I'm an investigative journalist. I, this is my thing. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to investigate the claims of Christianity, and I'm going to disprove them and get my wife back. That's what I'm going to do. And so he goes around the world, and he interviews the, the top scholars in and, and all kind of different areas. And long story short, he writes about this in this book called The Case for Christ. Lee Strobel gets converted to Christianity. And so it kind of works backwards. Why? Because he starts researching what can be researched, historical reality about Jesus. Did he exist? What did he say? What did he do? What, did he die? Well, if he died, why are we still talking about this guy? What's going on here? We're going to get to some of those realities today. So by inserting Pilate's name into the creed, the authors take Christianity out of the realm of ideas and place them in the real world where we all exist. But the mention of Pilate also highlights something else. It's going to get a little heavy in here today because the mention of Pilate's name highlights a great reality of the life, work, and ministry of Jesus, and that is the rejection of of Jesus by his contemporaries. 
See, the Jesus our culture espouses is usually a man that no one but a beast would hate. How many times do you hear Jesus spoken of ill in our culture? Never. Ne very, very rarely. Even when you go, you know, even the most liberal university and you're sitting on a professor who's, who's picking it apart and saying, you know, and turning Jesus into somebody else, they're still going to say pretty much he was a good person. He was a good teacher. He was a nice guy, right? He's a Mr. Rogers type, eternally nice and universally admired and loved by the world. Problem is, that is not the Jesus that is depicted for us in Scripture and in the creed. Jesus was rejected by his world and subjected, therefore, to a large amount of suffering because of it. It's easy to forget that Jesus was rejected and he suffered basically his whole life. At his birth, you know, we celebrate it every year. We focus, we shape our calendars around it, right? But it's easy to forget that at his birth, his parents were forced to flee into Egypt because King Herod wanted to kill Jesus to prevent him from becoming king. We forget that the backdrop of his birth and his backdrop of his flee in Egypt was the murder of countless baby boys trying to figure out which one could be the king, could be the Messiah. Right? Jesus isn't born in luxury. He's born in a stable, in abject poverty. Then Jesus grows up, and we don't know hardly anything about how he grew up. He grows up in obscurity. He takes on the family trade of carpentry. Then when he's around the age of 30, Jesus begins his public ministry. Now, the son of God becomes man, lives among us, and now this guy's about to kick off his ministry, right? This should, I, I would be pretty excited about this, right? This is a big deal. I'm expecting this guy. I mean, if Jesus comes to town and Jesus is going to plant a church, I'm expecting big things from that guy, right? And yet what happens is kind of the exact opposite of what we would expect. Jesus isn't met with universal acceptance and acclaim. Rather, he's rejected by his own brothers. <laughs> what are you doing? Who are you saying you are? We don't, we're separating ourselves from this guy. I, I, don't, I do not think he's the son of God. He's rejected by his own hometown. We remember this, right? prophet is not accepted in his own hometown. He's rejected by his own nation. He's then rejected by even the religious leaders of his nation. Jesus leads this public ministry under constant hostility and active opposition. And his public ministry ends famously in one of the worst ways possible Betrayal by one of his own, his, one of his inner men, his inner circle, one of his apostles, which led to his public condemnation and crucifixion. Now, here's what we need to think about. All of this was done 
by the nation's best and brightest leaders. The smartest, the most religious, the most powerful. The religious leaders conspired. The governmental leaders conspired. And even the everyday citizens, when given the choice to free Jesus or free Barabbas, a known murderer, they chose Barabbas. Jesus was rejected by his whole world. Now, let me ask you, if Jesus was rejected by all of his culture's best and brightest people, why do we think we will be accepted by ours? Why do we think Christianity is something that will make you more successful? Our leader died on a bloody cross. That should probably tell us something. Is Christianity really something that if you really live it right, if you really live like Jesus, you'll be more popular and non-controversial? Really? Isn't that the, just live like Jesus. Shut up, Christians, live like Jesus. Wait, we, they killed him. Your neighbors will love you. Everybody, every controversial topic, if we just live and love like Jesus, the world will come flocking to us. It's a different story than the one that's told in Scripture. And of course, we cannot talk about the suffering of Jesus without talking about the last day of his life. On that Friday, the Friday we call good, Friday, Jesus was beaten without mercy, mocked, bullied, and condemned to die on a Roman cross. Now, it's important for us to spend a moment. We've got a cross up here, a very simple cross. Um, the cross is the most universally accepted symbol in the world in history. Um, for centuries, people wear them around their neck. They put them in their ears. They hang them on their Rearview mirror, they put them on their cars, they put them in their living room. The cross is everywhere. Still, rock stars wear them, to priests wear them. And yet I think most of the time we don't really understand what, what that cross was meant to do or what that cross was. See, crucifixion was invented by the Persians around 500 B.C. But by the time of Jesus, it had been sadistically perfected by the Romans. They had almost 500 years to perfect it. And it was practiced until the time of Emperor Constantine when he ruled Rome in the 4th century. But during the days of Jesus, crucifixion was reserved for the most horrendous of all criminals. Everybody, if you got the death, it wasn't the only death penalty, right? Crucifixion was reserved for the worst of the worst. The worst of the Romans. So if you were a Roman citizen, you didn't get crucified. If you were the worst Roman, you'd be beheaded rather than crucified. The Jews also considered crucifixion the most horrific mode of death. As Deuteronomy 21, 22 through 23 says, and if a man has committed a crime, 
punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree. His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For look, a hanged man is cursed by God. Crucifixion was a sign that God had cursed you. The ancient Jewish historian Josephus called crucifixion, quote, the most wretched of deaths. The ancient Roman philosopher Cicero asked that all decent Roman citizens not even speak of the cross because it's too disgraceful a subject for the ears of decent people. Don't even talk about it, Cicero said. Now, it's important for us to understand that crucifixion wasn't just about killing people. You have far more simpler ways to kill people. It was about torture and the most public form of shaming possible. Listen how theologian Fleming Rutledge describes its purpose from her book, The Crucifixion. Quote, it was a form of advertisement or public announcement. This person is the scum of the earth, not fit to live, more of an insect than a human being. The crucified wretch was pinned up like a specimen. Crosses were not placed out in the open, <clears throat> excuse me, for convenience or sanitation, but for maximum public exposure. If you've seen Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ, you've witnessed a fairly accurate depiction of crucifixion. The person is stripped naked, nailed through the wrists, and hung, nailed to a cross, lifted up, dropped into place where they would hang to die a long, slow, excruciating death, often taking several days. In fact, the word excruciating literally means from the cross. It was invented to describe the most painful death imaginable. They needed a new word. They saw people crucified and they didn't have language to describe it, so they invented a new word, excruciating, ex-crux, from the cross. The person, they would either nail a seat to the cross or a footstool on the cross so the person could keep themselves up and maximize the torture and the pain. They didn't want them to die a quick death. So they would allow them to stand up and take some of the weight off of their lungs and breathe, and then they would sag back down until eventually they would succumb to the weight of their own body and would asphyxiate. Now remember, Jesus was, wasn't just crucified. He was beaten horribly first. His back would have been flayed open. He was whipped with the cat of nine tails, a leather, leather whip that had pieces of bone and glass on the end of it that when they would let it go, it would literally stick in the back of its victims and then they would rip it out, ripping the flesh, exposing 
the bones, exposing even organs. And then with the back like that, he was forced to carry his own cross or more than likely the beam, the cross member of his cross. And he can't make it all the way down, even though he's a strong man, a carpenter in the prime of his life. He can't carry this and he drops it and Simon of Cyrene is forced to carry it for him all the way to Golgotha, to Calvary, to the place of the skull where they nailed him to it in between two thieves for the whole city to see. Now, these are all historical facts. But honestly, the facts aren't that controversial. What's controversial is the theological meaning behind these facts. Listen, people got crucified all the time in ancient Rome. The Romans crucified literally thousands of people. But Jesus is the only one who changed the world through his crucifixion. Listen, his death changed how we mark time. Before Christ, right? And then A.D., the year of our Lord, that's what it literally stands for. We changed how we measure time. One, now, think what happened there. One guy gets killed in a way that thousands of other people had been killed like him, but now one guy through this thing that's already happened thousands of times, something changes. Jesus' death changed the world because of what he accomplished on the cross. And that, that should just cause question marks to go up. What did he accomplish on the cross? How do you accomplish anything by dying a brutal death? Well, theologians have a few words for this. I'm introducing you to some big words this morning. Maybe you've already known them. The, word, the words are penal, substitutionary, Atonement. Penal, there is a penalty. Substitutionary, Jesus took our place, the innocent for the guilty, the righteous for the unrighteous. Atonement, the work necessary to bring sinners back into a right relationship with a holy God. Let me give you some scriptures to kind of back this up. 1 Peter 2, 24, speaking of Jesus, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. 1 Peter 3, 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? That he might bring us to God. The prophet Isaiah foretold this hundreds of years earlier. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we, like sheep, have gone astray. 
We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, what does that mean? What is going on here? Now, this is the story that you've got to understand to understand what Jesus accomplished on the cross. God is holy. God is perfect. God is the only one who always does what is good, right, and perfect. And he creates mankind in his image to do what is good, right, and perfect. Except shortly into the story, mankind chooses to reject God and follow their own way. And they sin. Now here's the reality. God is holy. God is righteous. God is just. And God doesn't want sin to exist. It can't exist in a right relationship with him because he's holy. He's just, right? He's got to punish that sin. He's got to do something about it. And so the wages of sin is death. But surprisingly, God doesn't just condemn Adam and Eve immediately under the death penalty and give them no hope. He promises them a redeemer. He promises them that there's going to be a way that you can now fix this. You can bring atonement. We can fix our broken relationship. But that cannot come through a sinful person. We don't possess what's needed to make ourselves right with God. So God sends Jesus, the Son of God, the God-man, to come live the life that we couldn't live. He perfectly obeyed God. He did everything that Adam couldn't do. Jesus did everything that we can't do. Jesus did. And then on the cross, Jesus makes him our sin. He puts our sin on him. The, 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 the condemnation that we deserve goes on Jesus and Jesus there becomes our substitute. The curse that we deserve for our sin, Jesus bears it for us. Now what, what exactly on the cross there, what, is, what does Jesus save us from? Jesus saves us from the wrath of God. Now, that's not popular to talk about the wrath of God. Now listen, I want, you, I want you to understand this. The wrath of God is not an emotion. Right? Trying to avoid the wrath of your wife or the wrath of your husband or the wrath of your boss. What do we think of? We think, oh, he's in a fit. He's in a fury. Oh, I'm going to stay away until he calms down. That's not how God is wrathful. Listen, the wrath of God is God's righteous, holy activity in setting right what is wrong. When God goes to work and making things wrong that are wrong, making them right, that's the wrath of God. He's punishing the world of its sin. He's really getting, he's purifying the world of sin. He's pushing sin, attacking sin, going on the offensive of sin, getting it out of his universe. That's what the wrath of God does. It sees sin, this horrible infection in the human race, this horrible and selfish infection, and he goes to drive it out. And the wrath of God is literally the love of God working out sin, driving out sin. 
God loves his creation so much and he loves his own holiness so much, he will go to work and drive out this evil, this sin that's infected it. That's the wrath of God. Now we all would say, typically if you list like your perfect world, you're going to list a world that doesn't have sin, right? No lying, no cheating, no brokenness, no death, no curse. Who wants that? We'd say, yes, I want that. Okay, so God says, all right, good. I'm going to do that. But in order to do that, I have to punish all sin. I have to pour out my wrath upon all sin. And we, in our good days, we're like, yes, do it. Do it. Listen, I've had, in the past month, I've had two, three, I've had very valuable things stolen from me. My vehicle's been broken into twice, Okay. When I wake up and I see that, all I think about is the wrath of God. <laughs> Punish him! Get him! That's all I want. That's all I, I feel so violated. All I want. So most of the time when we're looking at the world and we're seeing a terrible thing, we're like, God, punish him. Do it. Get rid of it. Drive out that sin. I'm so sick and tired of the weight of sin. But then we start thinking, well, what? If he's driving out all sin, like I'm not too far back in that line. All right. I'm not breaking into cars. That's probably up here somewhere. But, you know, I'm pretty sure I've got a little bit of sin left. Pretty, pretty sure about that. So if he's wiping it all out, my head's on the chopping block too. Right? Here is our problem. God doesn't want to make the world a little bit better. God wants to make it perfect. God wants to make it holy. God wants to make it a place where he can come and walk because he is holy in himself. That's what we're in for, Christians. And he's making us into people that can walk with a God like that. But, in order for that to happen, the wrath of God has to be poured out. Therein lies our problem. How can God pour out his wrath without pouring it out on you? Penal, substitutionary, atonement. That's how. One man, only one man, because he's the God man, can take your place and can take the wrath of God for you can satisfy. We sing songs about God's wrath is satisfied. That means he's no longer angry. He's no longer waiting for someone to step up where that he can pour the wrath of God and they can empty and drain the dregs of the cup of the wrath of God. Jesus did it for us on the cross. Now, some are disgusted by the thought of a loving God sending his own son to die in such a horrible way like this. I've even, it's even been called divine child abuse. But listen again to this quote from Fleming Rutledge. It's a long one, so bear with me. There is something sickening in human nature. Uh, we can't make it a week. If you read the news... I don't care which news outlet you choose, but we can't make it a week 
without someone doing something that is sickening. Whether it's mass shootings, whether it's molestation, whether it's financial, corporate abuse, whatever it is, sickening. Why? There's something sickening in human nature and it corresponds precisely to the sickening aspects of crucifixion. The hideousness of crucifixion summons us to put away sentimentality and face up to the ugliness that lies just under the surface. The scandal, the outrage of the cross is commensurate with the offense and ubiquity of sin. Views of atonement wrought by Christ that do not acknowledge the gravity of sin are untruthful in two respects. One, they are untruthful about the human condition and they are untruthful about the witness of Holy Scripture. Old and New Testament alike, sin is the colossal X factor in human life. It is not something we do so much as it is something done to us by our mortal foe, the alien power that has lured us into becoming its agents. There is no room for sentiment here. The stakes are too high. The cross rears up over all human life because it is the scene of God's climactic battle against the power of a malignant and implacable placable enemy. The gruesomeness of the cross is commensurate with the gruesomeness of our enemy, sin. Now, in closing, I want to make two personal points of application this morning. First, I could not get this out of my head this week. The cross shows us that our personal experiences and feelings are far more unreliable guides than we think they are. Can you put yourself in the place of the disciples of Jesus on this Good Friday? Jesus' life and death looked like an abject failure from the outside. As Jesus' apostles stood at the foot of his cross, everything in their experience and feelings said, God has left you all alone. God is not in control. Jesus is dead and everything you've believed in for the past few years has been a lie. All the powerful people agreed, Jesus is dead. Jesus is a liar. Don't trust him. Don't believe in him. Their eyes are witnesses. Their feelings are witnesses. We've missed it. And yet, this very event was going to be the eternal evidence that God loves us more than we can even fathom. Romans 5, 8 says it like this, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, 
Christ died for us. Put yourself in the apostles' place. Everything they're looking at says, God has forgotten us. Your leader is dead on a cross. You're under threat of persecution now. Everything in their gut tells them, we've screwed up, we've messed up, we've missed it. And yet in reality, this event was going to be the one event that can convince them forever that God actually is with them, God actually does care for them, God actually does love them. So, when everything around you feels like Good Friday, dark, depressing, full of loss, remember Jesus' cross. Remember his cross. It felt like all hope was lost. And then three days later, the story changed. And the world changed with it. Listen, it's very tempting to judge God's love for us based on our current circumstances. On the quality of your marriage, the obedience of your kids, the amount of money in your bank account, the neighborhood you're in, the health of your body. Very easy to look at our world and go, my life sucks, so God must suck. That's the temptation. That's a human temptation. And I'm going to say this. Look beyond what sucks right here and look to the cross. That's the proof that God loves you more than anyone else in the universe. Lastly, this one's very simple. Jesus is the real Savior who really lived and really suffered and really died so that we can be really forgiven of our real sins. Do you feel your sins? Do you feel the guilt? Do you feel the shame? Do you feel the brokenness? Do you feel the frustration? Those are real. What do you need? You don't just need more counseling. That might help too. But you don't just need more counseling. You need to be really forgiven. Well, the only way you can be really forgiven from a real holy God is to have a real substitute who's really the Christ. And that's Jesus. And so this morning, don't, you're not bringing your sins to a God who might or might not accept them. You're bringing them to a God who's already placed your sins on his son and punished them there. He dealt with them there. So come to the cross and receive freedom, the freedom that only the gospel can give us. Listen, how can Good Friday become good news at all? How? It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense, but here we are 2,000 years later. 
And what do we think? Some guy in the fourth century just said, I'm going to dig up some, this old guy that was crucified 400 years ago, and I'm going to invent this whole new religion and come up with this idea that actually came back to life, and I'm going to write this document, the Apostles' Creed, and I'm going to manufacture this whole thing and take over the world. That's your theory of how Christianity got here? Come on. We worship a guy who died on a blasted cross. Now, why? Because he got up from the blasted cross. Because God said, God vindicated him from death. He overcome death. He stood around. He convinced those brothers that doubted him. Those brothers that rejected him. He convinced them, I really am the son of God. These are historical facts that we put our trust and faith in, whatever you want to say. But what do they mean? It means God has dealt with our sin problem. When we come to the table this morning, that's what we celebrate. The real Savior who really suffered so that we can really be forgiven of our real sins. I pray that you would take him by faith this morning. Jesus, you said that to the apostle, 1 Corinthians, that every time we take the Lord's Supper, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until you return. We do that this morning. Jesus, you took our place. You took our sins. You took our punishment. You took the wrath of God so that we could take your righteousness, so that we could take your acceptance, so we could take your forgiveness, so we could take your place in the family, the adoption as sons and daughters. We worship you this morning. And we come as still sinful. Though our sin has been dealt with on the cross, we still, it still lingers in us and it still, we still struggle with it. We still fight against it until the day of your return. And so we are hungry. Our souls are hungry this morning and we need you and you haven't left us alone. You've given us this meal. You've given us this family. You've given us your spirit. We come and eat hungry. Would you feed our souls through your body and through your blood, to this gospel feast this morning, for your glory and our good, in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.